0: You're listening to the Classic Gamers Guild Podcast. Well, for as long as I've been doing this podcast, it has been one of my biggest goals to be able to welcome this week's guest. He is the grandfather of computer role-playing games, the grandfather of the modern MMO game, creator of the Ultima series and Origin Systems. He's visited the Titanic, he's been to outer space, and of course, he is one of my personal heroes. Welcome to the show, Lord British Richard Garriott.
1: Oh, thank you very much. That's a very kind intro. I appreciate it.
0: It is just such a huge honor and privilege to be talking to you today. Oh, thanks, uh, thanks. Um, unfortunately, my co-host Paul could not be here today. Uh, some unfortunate personal circumstances, uh, of which the details I will not go into, prevented him from being able to make it, but um, he does uh, send his regards as a fan of yours as well.
1: Great, thank you.
0: To start off, I did finish reading uh, Explore Create, your autobiography, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. just this past summer. It is a great read. I absolutely recommend it to anyone who is a fan of yours, anyone who's listening to this should definitely go out. And uh, read that book. And as such, we're not going to retread too much of what's covered in there. But uh, a few questions did arise as I was reading it. Number one, um, do your dinner parties always come with the possibility of death or dismemberment? <laughs> uh,
1: uh, you know, funny way to funny way to phrase that. But uh, uh, y- well, it, it is it is interesting. I just had a dinner party the other day, and uh, absolutely, uh, you know, one of my goals through my dinner parties is to uh, you know, turn it up a notch and make sure that there are activities uh, to be had that are well outside their traditional. Uh, but but as you have noted, uh, uh, they do often uh, include uh, hazards that you wouldn't normally expect at a dinner party. Uh, you know, it's interesting that reminds me of a story that's 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 not in the book. Uh, but we were doing a political fundraiser uh, in the last election cycle and the uh, uh because of the candidate who was coming by, the Secret Service came through my house and saw all the crossbows <laughs> and swords and and wheel lock pistols and rifles and things mounted all over the walls. And they walked in, they were like, "Well, uh, you know, most all this is going to have to come down." and so we we literally had to you know spend a few hours removing all of the weaponry from the <laughs> walls of the main floor. Interestingly, the two things they left up were the wheel lock pistol and the wheel lock rifle. They were not only mounted up high enough, they would be difficult to grab, but they figured correctly that those would also be a little bit hard to load and fire with any real sense of uh, urgency. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, all the rest of the equipment that got piled in the master bedroom in a lump <laughs> prior to our event.
0: I, I love that it requires hours to take down all of the weapons from your home. <laughs> Now, one game I really want to talk about, which I don't think was talked about very much um, at length in your book, is Ultima 7, because that is probably my single favorite game of all time. It is just... uh I started the series at Ultima 6, which was already just, like, such a huge and amazing game, and then just the... Jump from Ultima 6 to Ultima 7 was not even, like, a logical step up. It was just, like, leaps and bounds beyond. It was, like, really mind-blowing when I first turned on Ultima 7 and came to the first uh, game screen and just saw, like, just how much of a step up it was. And there's a lot of people who share my opinion that it is the peak and pinnacle of computer role-playing games. When you consider the scope of the game at the time that it came out, there's really hasn't been very many games that can compare... Uh, to the impact that uh, Ultima 7 had uh, so i guess uh my question is like uh is there anything about Ultima seven that you would have wanted to do differently or is there anything that you wanted to put in that you weren't able to at that time
1: uh, you know it's interesting you you point to ultima seven as the sort of the pinnacle of the series and or uh, even more broadly role-playing games you know i, I feel very similarly about Ultima seven uh, and what's interesting about that is that I don't think any less effort was put into trying to maximize the forward progress in any of the Ultimas before or after.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: there was something very magical about Ultima seven that really had to do with the team that came together to create it. Um, that that team, it was very obvious early in the project that the people that you know came together to build the game, you know, without regard to whether the person building the wind, the pop-up windowing infrastructure, or the person uh, building how tiles would no longer be restricted to a little, you know, rectangular area, but we could, you know, make wagons that would move by kind of adding them together in pieces that could move <laughs> around the world. Uh, every aspect of that game, the the specialist who was in charge of kind of pushing that part of the game forward uh were so incredibly talented and everyone was so devoted to it i mean it, it was the pinnacle of origin as a lifestyle we all came together with this you know shared ideal to really make the this amazing game everyone worked very hard hard at it everyone was you know greatly appreciative of uh of each other's work uh and greatly added to each other's work so i mean it 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 was obvious what was happening during the creation process, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so no surprise, it it came out quite well.
0: And uh, whereabouts did Ultima 7 come come in uh, in the scheme of when Origin was being bought out by EA? Already as early as Ultima 7, there were references to EA uh, like in Elizabeth and Abraham
1: and the... um, The The sphere of the cube and the tetrahedron. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so it's important to know the sort of the history of that... uh, uh, of, of both the, what became the storyline of Ultima 7 and then also our kind of off and on relationship with Electronic Arts.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, for those who don't know the history, early earlier in Origin history, we'd actually distributed through Electronic Arts. And we had a falling out with EA where they started publishing games that were literally copyright infringement on Ultima, meaning literally they people had stolen the random green dot pattern of grass and put oh. it in their own game. So things that we were going, we were literally showing them precise copyright infringement. And uh, not only did EA kind of fight through and kind of push us around like, hey, you can't stop us from publishing competitive games, which... Wasn't in my mind the point. Yeah, uh, but uh, but even though we did get out of that distribution contract, they actually sued us. We actually ended up paying them money to settle out of court, and just to kind of wind up the stuff with EA. So that's why we had this sort of. Oh. That's why EA became the punching bag in <laughs> a lot of Ultima stories, especially with Ultima Seven. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the person with which we had that falling out, the the primary instigator, had left EA uh, since uh, those early days. And, uh, and so as we were looking again to fight for shelf space during the retail era, and we were looking at partners and began to seriously consider electronic arts again, now that the management had changed, uh, I, you know, it was with some irony that we said, hey, by the way, if, if we do, if we do uh, join you here sometime during the development of Ultima 7, you might wanna know what we've put in the game. And, uh, <laughs> and so we shared with them the plot uh, uh, that basically, you know, roasted electronic arts and basically, you know, called them the evil empire and, uh, and then, and made fun of their logo and some of the personnel and all these other things. And, and actually EA was very, uh, circumspect about that. I actually thought it was good fun. I mean, people have been poking at EA forever. People have called them the evil empire before and since. Uh, and so they didn't, uh, they, their egos were not bruised. Uh, in fact, if anything, I think they, they, you know, found good fun in huh. the kind of uh, being teased around an area, which might have some truth to it. Uh, uh, and so, uh, uh, so it was actually during Ultima seven just prior to the release of Ultima seven uh, or, you know, at least past the middle point in Ultima seven is when we became part of electronic arts.
0: Okay. Oh, well, that, that's actually, uh, I don't know. I that, that kind of raise, raises my respect a little bit for them that they were, uh, they were totally uh, cool and left that off, but that's about, Probably about as far as my respect for them goes at this point. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, yeah, I, I, I still have lingering uh, c- concerns myself, I must say.
0: <laughs> um, so uh, jumping ahead a little bit, uh, one section I was really hoping would come up in your book, which uh, I did not happen to see, was uh, talk about Ultimate 9, which is um, polarizing, to say the least. But you yourself actually, I- I've seen you say that you were actually quite happy with how Ultima 9 turned out.
1: Yeah. It, ultimately, so yeah. So let me explain that. Yeah, and I agree it is extremely polarizing, and um, you know it, it's it's interesting that Altman gets all kinds of flack uh, for all kinds of reasons. Some of which I think it is fairly deserved. Uh, but I can explain at least the rationale for what the what our thought process was. Uh, but I still think the, the people who who uh, were disappointed or, or offended by certain decisions we made, uh, I can understand their perspective. And then there are certain areas where, you know, it's un- it's unfortunate and it goes back again to that relationship with electronic arts
2: mm-hmm. that
1: uh, uh, there, there were things that were not as they should be at launch that we corrected, but this was before the, really the days of the internet being able to do regular patches and things nicely. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even though we quote fixed it, uh, hardly anybody knows or cares that we fixed it. Um, and so let me explain uh, kind of the trajectory of, of how this went. so. When we first started working on Ultima uh, Online, uh, and we were, we were working on Ultima Online and Ultima 9 at about the same time, and when we pitched both those games at Electronic Arts, this was before there were any massively multiplayer games to speak of in the world, and so when we pitched it, EA said, we have no interest, and we, we don't believe there's a market for a game like Ultima Online. And so they basically said, that's right, you guys, yeah. you can't do it. And they said, on the other hand, we really want Ultima 9. Well, that's the game because, uh, you know, we believe in the Ultima series. Uh, we had, had a bobble with Ultima 8. Uh, they were eager for us to kind of replant the, you know, the crowning anchor back with the Ultima series. And so basically they supported Ultima 9 and were doing everything they could to stop any thoughts about Ultima Online. And we pitched Ultima Online for three cycles. So it's once every six months for a period of a year. Um, you know, it, once every six months, we, we came back to pitch Ultima Online. And then finally, the time they originally kind of got it and kind of saw that it was happening was only only after we produced this demo. And uh, the demo, uh, demo disks that we made available where we charged people... Five dollars a copy for the privilege of being sent, you know, a, a beta <laughs> copy of the, of the CD. Mm-hmm. The 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 beta the beta test dramatically outsold their lifetime sales units for the finished game, and so <laughs> and so immediately EA goes, whoops, I guess we were wrong on UO versus U9, and then they changed their they they switched their tune. They said we no longer want Ultima Nine, we only want Ultima Online, right? And we want you to cancel Ultima 9 and put all those resources on Ultima Online. And I was like, you guys have screwed <laughs> me once going the other way, I am not I refuse to do it. And I said, you know, because if I do, they said, "Oh, we'll let you finish Ultima 9 later." And I said, "No, you won't." <laughs> you yeah. know how this goes. <laughs> um, you know, I I I want to keep Ultima 9 going. And so eventually what I agreed to was we 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 put we throttled the team down on Ultima 9 to a skeleton crew. We put most of those people on ultima online ultima online came out and was the best-selling pc game in origin and ea history and as i suspected they said what we really want right now is ultima online 2 we really don't ever want ultima 9. and i was like see i told you guys this was going to happen uh and i basically said i'm going to finish ultima 9. you have no choice you know i'm gonna i'm gonna find dollars on the side i basically was a non-compliant employee and began to, in fact, this is really what ended my career at EA, I believe, was my non-compliance with management dictate from the mm. top down. And so I I basically, Ultimate 9 was finished only because of personal will to make it happen. Right. That, that also therefore meant though that even to the degree I was able to put some staff on it and get it finished, people wanted me to be done with it and move on as soon as possible. And so we made it a strategic error, which was to release it prior to certain aspects of kind of a fine-tuning and debugging. And and so the critiques of Ultima 9, in my mind, fall into two areas, one of which I'll take the blame for, and one of which I'll try to pass the buck over to you know, mismanagement you know, from our parent company. The the ones that I can take the blame for, which I get made fun of by, uh, uh, like there's a guy named Spoonie that loves Spoonie, to rip on yes, Ultima 9. Absolutely. You know, and the, the classic phrase that he likes to rip on is, you know, like uh, uh, when the avatar is talking to somebody and says, you know, you know, uh, you should go find a paladin, and, and the, the avatar goes, "What is What's paladin? a paladin?" <laughs>
2: you know, What's a paladin?
1: That's the classic, and and uh, but the reason there are things like that that exist was because that we had good evidence to show that recent Ultima players we're not the same people as older Ultima players. Right. And and so there were a lot of very new people coming into the game. And so we had actually, you know, consciously gone out and tried to make sure that if you had not been an Ultima player before, uh, because it had been, you know, seven or the number of years since Ultima seven, the last really great one, you know, was five or six years. And so uh, we assumed and believed we really needed to write this thing that the uh, introduce people to role-playing games uh, more carefully. Mm-hmm. The, however, it, it in fact does sound pretty silly when the avatars there <laughs> saying, like, you know, what's a paladin? What and is so, the codex
0: I, of ultimate wisdom? Yeah.
1: yeah. And so I would sit there and go, like, okay, that's a fair cop. That was my decision. To be made fun of that is fair and reasonable. Uh, the uh, But on the flip side of that, there were certain aspects of kind of smoothness of the user interface or clean quality connections between plot threads, all those things that we normally do in that last 10 or 20% of the time, which is really what makes a game great, is that Mm -hmm. last 10 or 20% of the time. And we shortcut that a lot. And that was really just because of the pressure we were getting to ship it, move on, or kill it. And so I was, every day in that last 20%, I was sort of just fighting to keep the project alive uh and unfortunately it shipped with some real problems and as of course as soon as you have a bazillion playtesters, you see the problems really easily and you can fix the problems really easily but they're you know they've already had that taste in their mouth of uh it didn't go well Mm -hmm. and so so those those things we did fix ultimately i think it's a uh i I think it's a a great game uh but you need to play on the fixed version and you need to forgive it's uh you know what's a paladin
0: (laughs) (laughs) um so if the uh, if they had allowed you, would you have continued the series beyond? Like, would there have been an Ultimate Ten?
1: Oh, unquestionably. No, in fact, I have the design documents for Ultimate Ten. Oh, wow. Um, and so, uh, uh, unquestionably, we would have uh, you know continued both online and offline, and maybe some hybrids. I mean, it's hard to say exactly how it would evolve uh, from an online and offline, off, online and offline standpoint, but uh, unquestionably, we would have continued it.
0: So how would Ultimate 9 have ended if, if you were given, like, the carte blanche? Like, if you were allowed to do whatever you wanted? Because um, cl- you probably would not have ended with killing the Avatar, <laughs> I'm going to guess. Uh,
1: well, interestingly, I, I might have sent that Avatar off to Valhalla, so to speak. Metaphorically.
2: Oh, okay. But,
1: I, uh, but I'm not sure what I would have done physically with the world. Um, we actually had multiple endings, to Ultima Nine, and the one we selected um, was uh, based upon the reality that we faced, you know, for the future of the line. Uh, but, um, but, 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 but you, you'll 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 recognize this, even though you only came in starting with Ultima Six. You know, Ultimas One, Two, and Three really were, and a Calibath before that, they really yes. were just me learning how to program. You That's know, right. How to program in Basic, how to program in Assembly, how to, you know, I had. 3D dungeons, 2D outdoors, spaceships flying around, time travels through gates. You know, it was basically everything and anything I thought was cool in movies or books that I was exposed to mm-hmm. all tried to be crammed into one experience, kind of hodgepodge. And it wasn't until uh, Ultima 4 that I began to create my own world. But again, with Ultima 4, as and, and Ultima 4 I think is the, the first great Ultima. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm and, very
0: familiar with the Ultima series. I just uh, uh I never got, a, I just didn't get around to playing it until Ultima Six. But uh, I'm very familiar with the the story
1: of four and five, and the. But when you think of Ultima Five, you know, I when I wrote Ultima Four, I wasn't thinking about an Ultima Five, and so with each Ultima, I started to go, oh, I guess I'm going to do another one how did I end the story before and how can I build <laughs> upon it? You know, and if you look at the earliest ones, they are completely unrelated. You know, Ultima yes, one is right. placed in my D world of Caesarea. Ultima two takes place on earth to make time travel relevant. You know, Ultima three sort of goes back to Caesarea, but not exactly. It goes to some of the new place. And only with Ultima four do I invent my entire world from scratch with Britannia. Mm. And so with five and six, I sort of look back to decide you know where can I start now? And it was only starting with Ultima 7 that I said, "Hey, you know what? These might go on for a while. They seem to have, they seem to have lasted. Let me let me at least bring some main characters in that that other than Lord British, mm-hmm. uh, who who go forward in time. You know, I already had the companions at that point and a few of the town leaders that were friends and family generally. Uh, but uh, uh, I was beginning to think more long term. You know, starting with seven. So, would you have just
0: kept making more and more Ultima games, like until the end? Like, is there any point? Like, do you have any idea of when the series might have stopped on your terms?
1: Um, no, I mean, if you look at, you know, uh, uh, you look at other games that have come into existence since, and most of them are still going on to this day. So,
0: yep, absolutely. Uh,
1: you know, I think that's one of the greatest disappointments is that EA, you know, not only did EA basically kill it, um, mm. but EA won't let it restart. And that I find you know even more sad is that uh, myself and others have all tried to convince EA to allow the trademark to be uh, brought back. In fact, I would I've offered numerous times to help or encourage them to do it without me if that was what was necessary. Uh, but they will neither right. let it go nor work on it. Right, it appears. Uh, but you did get an opportunity
0: to make Shroud of the Avatar. Well, the
1: way yeah, the way I would describe it is, you know, I describe it as a spiritual successor to Ultima. Yes. And what I what I mean by that is that you know while a lot of uh, specifics uh, about the individual story of Ultima I couldn't bring forward, uh, Lord British is my own trademark. Uh, obviously, the design ideals of sandbox role playing games and uh storylines that include virtues and ethical behavior is not protected in fact lots of other people do it now mm-hmm. uh you know it's interesting how you know i even hear people talk about how uh, newer games will do a character creation in some sort of uh, interview process and i'm going yeah i know i started that you know <laughs> it's, uh, they, they talk about it like something new and i'm going no no it's yeah, not that no. new <laughs> it, it, it has a history I, I was there and um uh and so, uh, so Shroud of the Avatar is sort of picking up where I left off uh, as much as possible and then even and continue to explore things. Like if you if you look back at Ultima, you know, we were we were stabbing in the dark to create features each time around,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: whether it was NPCs with conversations or NPCs with schedules for the day and night or ethical parables at all. Uh, or this character creation with an interview process to make sure that it is your avatar and not some alter ego character you're playing um, you know all those things were just kind of stabs in the dark and so and the same thing is true with shroud of the avatar where um, you know one of the things i uh, believe is that it's always fun to play with other people but it's it's a story is much easier told in a single player setting mm-hmm. and and so you know we we tried to create a set of tools that would allow you to do both of these things. And, you know, and Shroud of the Avatar, as each Ultima I've done, you know, we, we push forward on a number of fronts, some of which turn out great and some of which turn out to be completely useless. Right. Um, you know, a, a completely useless example that you probably have heard on the Ultima Online front was the virtual ecology.
0: Ecology, yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, which still I see other game makers occasionally. Broadcasting their intent to do, and I almost always wave my hands, you know, in the air and go like, "Beware! There be dragons here! <laughs> there be dragons!" You know, you ought to at least get a debrief before you uh, before you go dive down that path. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because there there's there are plenty of things we've done uh, that have stuck around, um, and there are uh, innumerable things we've done that most people don't remember, or if they do, not well. Uh, that uh, have been removed and replaced with newer features going forward.
0: And so, what's the fate of Shadow of the Avatar now? Uh, I believe that it was um, uh, I, I believe the assets have been sold off.
1: well, the 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 team now is uh, is still is operating it and continuing to build it and will hopefully provide value back uh, um, uh, to investors and such. But it had the but the structure, the kind of corporate structure that was over Portalarium, since it's really a one product company. We we just collapsed the corporate structure, but the but the team members remain the same. The work remains the same. Episode mm. two is now in development. Uh, hopefully, it will continue to uh, uh, at least remain stable and hopefully grow and thrive uh, as uh, uh, you know as it, as it moves forward to the future. What's not likely to happen is uh, you know to see a portalarium that would uh, you know publish uh, ten other products. Right. And so, uh, uh, but but Shroud of the Avatar is you know as a solid and stable community and. Uh, hopefully we will continue to grow. Uh,
0: is there any push being made to address concerns from Kickstarter backers?
1: Uh, depends what you mean, what concerns you might be referring to.
0: <laughs> I am actually not sure of this because I was not involved in Kickstarter, but just one of the, uh, one of the recurring questions when I uh, asked the community what they would like to hear from you, a lot of them brought up uh, unfulfilled Kickstarter
1: perks. Ah, okay. Yeah, so what's interesting about this is that you know when you do a Kickstarter, you do the Kickstarter before a product exists at all. Mm-hmm. And so you're sitting here saying, okay, this is what we think is going to happen. Uh, but we make it very clear at the very beginning that, by the way, no plan survives contact with the, en- with the enemy. You know, and, and by the way, that's true in the military, and it's true in software development.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so you have to think on your feet and make changes. Like, for example, one of the things that we wanted to provide people was that if you were a Duke-level backer, of which there's maybe 200 out of the tens of thousands... So for these 200 people, we wanted to give them a custom face within the game. Mm -hmm. However, as it turns out, the technology as it evolved made that not plausible. And so instead, we gave them other digital assets that we thought had that same monetary value. And so we swap out things which we think are of comparable or hopefully better value to the players when we find one of those earliest things is not manageable. And we've done it since the beginning, by the way. It's not yeah. a new thing or an old thing, but inevitably, some people come up there like, no, no, I really want the original thing. And we're like, well, you know, read the fine, read the fine print. Mm-hmm. It says these can all be changed out and swapped out because when we start a Kickstarter, you don't have a game, and so it's impossible to know exactly what will be possible and won't be possible. And so, yes, we have modified numerous, uh, uh, you know, plans with the reality of what was done. Uh, and there are still some people who, uh, you know, would you know, grumble that they want it the original way, but no, we, we've, we've, we've told people on all those Kickstarter promises, we've already told people that, you know, there's by the way, 85, 90% of them were fulfilled exactly as planned, but something like 10 or 15% of them had to be swapped out for something else.
0: Right. So are you still, uh, are you still involved with shout of the avatar then? Like, are you still, uh, working on that?
1: Absolutely. So, yeah. um, you know, so what's interesting is it's very easy for people to either overestimate or underestimate my involvement on all games. Right. Um, let's go back to Ultima 7, you know, which was a phenomenally great game. You know, if you try to pick on almost any feature and say, who is the person who's responsible for that being great, my name would not be on the list. You know, it would be, you know, where did the story come from? And it was people like Warren Spector and the team that he, uh, uh, the story team and his guidance of that that did that made it so wonderful. If you thought about Combat, you know, it'd be two or three of the programmers that work together in that whole system. It'd be, you know, et cetera. You, You could go you go point by point, and there's somebody else that you really should give credit for. Or Ultima Online, you know, really, it's really Star Long who deserves the credit for Ultima Online. As much as, you know, I've been there, present, during all of these, and I get to be the shepherd that describes the goalposts, you know, where I sit back and say, look, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create a game, like let's say if it's Ultima Online, you know, we want to create a game that, you know, not only is this you know you and your avatar we want to make sure there's a sense of the virtues but it's going to be complicated to do storytelling so we still have to figure out a way to bring that stuff forward and um we we, we we did try the virtual ecology and you know so i would sort of lay out here are here's the goalposts here's what we're shooting for but then the games that turn out the best the individual contributors that build those systems go way beyond what even I had suggested. Mm-hmm. They just know where it fits in. I just get to kind of describe how the pieces fit together. And so, yes, in the case of Strata of the avatar, the way, the way I work with start of the avatar is as a player and critic and to adjust the priorities of the future goalposts. And so, but what's interesting is that, that, that the team often will, uh, ignore me or overrule me or deprioritize <laughs> things uh, along the way and so I play the game I put the ideas that I believe we should be focusing on into our bug tracking system which is not only tracking just bugs but also uh, bigger uh, you know ideals uh, and then the team breaks that down to parts and pieces they think are workable and so for example I'll, I'll mention you know uh, uh, you know kind of how that works like there's a Uh, A guy named B. Cotton, Brandon Cotton, who uh, does a lot of the crafting and uh, uh, other skill uh, interconnections, uh, both how you train up your skills and how world objects react to your engagement with them. And so he knows that system obviously far better than I do. He wrote the whole thing. He also knows exactly what he had in mind when he put it together. And so when I come in and I go, you know, I really think, you know, we need to have. Uh, whiskey that can be aged because that way you can come back to it in five years and that whiskey really will have been five year old whiskey in real earth time <laughs> and even though the whiskey isn't any different I think it will be cool to open a keg of, keg of it and he'll go okay yeah I get that but by the way that is unlike any other system <laughs> we put in it and so I, I can't give it priority right now and by the way it is in the game now finally but it took like four years to get that in the game and that's because he has to be on top of, of you know how and when that becomes a priority and the same thing's true where like one of the ones I harp on these days is uh, is cannibalism. I am a pro cannibalism game designer <laughs> guy. And uh, but the rest of the team is not. And they could actually put it in any day of the week they wanted to. And I've occasionally got them to agree to do it, but they're all a bit unsettled by it. They actually <laughs> their general opinion is is that in the case of Ultima Online as much fun as people had with it, that people mostly use it for trolling behavior and it actually tended to push people out of the game huh. that you really wanted and needed in and so we still have this debate all the time but if i ever need to win one i can always pull out a quote metaphoric silver bullet and just force it through but otherwise i put these goals up we debate them as a team the individual responsible for each um, system gets to have a fundamental authority uh, and we move forward but yes i'm still involved
0: I also want to take the time now just to say on the record that, uh, in for what I believe and hope to be the right reasons, I'm a big fan of your, um inclusion of the child abuse in yeah. very many of your games. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it is something which, uh, obviously takes your explanation of why it's there in order to understand it. Yes, uh, exactly. Which I'd be happy
1: to give here too, just in case, uh, any why of your listeners. Why not? Absolutely. Go for it yeah yeah i, I, so, I think
0: uh, I think you deserve the chance to defend yourself on to this explain one. to explain let me help wait wait let me explain <laughs> <laughs> you know,
1: why is there cannibalism why is there why are there these homages to killing children? Um, so uh, yeah, so the story with that one, which is i think a really important story you know, it goes back to Ultima four, and you know when I was doing Ultima four. And I had already decided upon the eight virtues, you know, honesty, compassion, valor, justice, sacrifice, honor, spirituality, and humility. You know, the next problem was, is how do you make quests that show off those or engage you in a debate about each of those?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and some of those you can at least imagine pretty easily. Like if it's courage, well, if I'm running into, if I take on a monster that's tougher than me, it's courage. But if I run away from a monster that's much tougher than me, Maybe that's not fear, maybe that's actually just being smart. you mm-hmm. know what i mean so so you how to structure an interaction around the eight virtues first of all is hard. The second part that I took with me as I was designing scenes in Ultima Four was that after you've done a number of tests, as long as it's a test that's almost as good as it actually being a test because if you think the game is going to judge you on it, it means you will think about it and act accordingly. Even if I've not managed to code something behind it that will actually dock your points in these virtue areas. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the tests in the game actually were that. They were just things that looked like it would be a test. And so, for example, in the final dungeon, that, you know, I, I did things like um, uh, one room that you went into had a party that looked just like yours. One mage, one fighter, one tinker, you know, one shepherd, one everything else. And that's what you would have with you when you came in the room. And so I thought, oh, it looked like it's a doppelganger of you, because the graphics were just little simple stick figures. Yeah. And so it, I thought, ha you know, it's not really a test. I just, I knew it would make you wonder if it's a test. And so I was like, okay, put it in. And one that I put in uh was this room very close to the end of the game, where there were some cages in the corners, little prison cells, and in the center of the room was a switch. And if you threw the switch, the cages would open. And what was in those cages were the icons for children. And all children looked the same in the game. There's not even a you can't tell boy children from girl children or anything else, they're just a child. But in this case those children were monsters. They actually would be set to attack you. And they had attributes of monsters. And But they came from all four corners of the room, so they pretty quickly surround <laughs> you. And when you're surrounded and being attacked, your natural inclination will be to fight back. And I thought, well, this will be an interesting quandary, because the avatar who's trying to make sure they're on truly their best behavior will probably feel it's a, that they might be docked for murdering the children. When in fact, in my mind's eye, they're either vampires or zombies, or pick your own metaphor. You know, the game wasn't even sophisticated enough at that time. To tell you what they were. They were just right. monsters. And and as far as I cared, kill them. They're monsters. But I knew that you would at least pause. Uh, and so I put it in the game. And a few weeks prior to the game being published, one of our QA staffers was playing through the game, saw that room, and wrote a letter to my brother Robert, basically complaining that he refused to work for a company that so clearly supported child abuse. <laughs> and my brother came to me with this letter saying, "Richard, what in the hell have you put in your game?" And I'm like, "Actually, I have no idea. let <laughs> I'm curious what he's talking about." And as so we go and interview the QA person, he tells us this is the room. And and my brother says, "Richard, you know you have to take this out of the game." And I'm like, "Going, you are. You've got to be kidding me." This letter tells me this was a great moment <laughs> in this game. The fact that I have provoked a deep emotional reaction is so hard to do in a game and that i'm proud that i've done it and by the way he's wrong they're monsters you can kill them he said but they do look like children so if you don't want to kill them you can charm them and they'll walk away you can put them to sleep and then you can walk away you can put down your sword and hit them with your fist until they take 50% (laughs) damage and then they will run away Uh, or you can don't throw the switch just walk out of the room and uh, I said, there's plenty of ways past it if you're at all concerned. And I'm actually pleased that you are concerned. Uh, but I won't take it out of the room, out of the uh, the room, out of the game.
2: Mm.
1: And the argument eventually went for my brother. He got my dad to try to get me to take it out. They got my mom to try to make me to take it out. They were <laughs> our board members and investors. My mom was our art director. Uh, and I basically was alone saying, guys, I refuse to take it out. And they were like, we're not going to publish it. And I said, well, you can not publish it if you want because I'm not taking it out. And so eventually I won that another this another argument uh it came out and no one ever complained about it so i mean no one even noticed it as far as i know uh but i still was very proud that it went in and but because of that debate because it was such a deep family argument uh i have put the homage to killing children in every game i've Mm -hmm. done since and so including shroud of the avatar there is a there's a room in shroud of the avatar where you're going down in a uh a dungeon that is largely an illusion, and that's your first clue that you can just do this, it's okay, but deep in the dungeon, you know, you find a a man that is being tortured, then a woman that is being tortured, then a child that is being tortured, and then you find a cage where there is the man and the woman and the child. If you've rescued them, they have ended up in this cage, and as you go to pull the lever to try to let them out of this final scene, they are crushed by a a, a person crusher and so you are therefore again sort of responsible for their death and even though this entire dungeon is an illusion so it literally is not real right um there was enough concern by the team that people would still complain about it that the team put a back door in so there's actually a way you can pass that room with great effort to where you don't squish the illusionary uh man woman and child uh but again it's an illusion squish him
0: yeah uh in one exception though there was um you mentioned a moment in Tabla rasa where uh somebody went over your head and refused to include uh such a scene
1: yes that was susan Caff, whose name should live in infamy what was
0: it what was the moment that you had in mind what, what did you have planned
1: uh, boy, let's see what, uh, exactly it was. Um, you know, to be honest, I don't even remember, um, what the, the moment was, but yeah, but I think that, uh, as you've noted, Susan did not implement it as designed. So mm-hmm. I, I, I can't actually, actually tell you with great authority, um, you know, what part of it made it and what part of it did not at this stage. But, uh, but yes, I did have one non-compliant team member who, who, who just like for shroud of the avatar they felt they had to provide a backdoor just in case there's some soft-hearted people against, you know, holographic projections.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> but uh uh but yeah Susan Susan was refused to implement as uh, designed.
0: Well, uh just dip into the mailbag here. Sure. Um we have this is going to be in two parts because one is not really a question it's just front comes from tim Byrne from the classic gamers guild facebook page who says thanks for all the years of entertainment and joy your creations have brought uh and to follow that up black mage from the ultimate dragons asks have you ever just sat and wondered exactly how many lives your games have impacted
1: oh you know well first thanks to both um you know one of the joys of getting in early like i did is just that you get to you know lay some of the foundations and and have a chance to do what you've described which is you know uh, not only reach people early and often uh, mm-hmm. but make some of these have some moments uh, that have av- that have advanced the state of the art um and uh but yes i i do occasionally sit back and just uh, you know sit to myself and and smile about the wonderful opportunity I've been afforded. and mm. and what's interesting about that is that, of course, I, you know I think I work hard and I think I'm a pretty smart guy, but you know i I know there are plenty of other people who work harder and plenty of other people that are smarter. i uh, you know I had the the third pillar, which was I was just really lucky to be born at just the right place in time. <laughs> and so right. uh, as as much as, as fun as it might be to reflect on, you know, uh, uh, the fact that I have had the opportunity to affect the industry and people in the way that I have, I also recognize that boy was I was I really lucky to be able to be in that position.
0: We have one from uh, Greg French of the Classic Gamers Guild Facebook group who asks, um, "I want to hear the story of how you hired Chris Roberts." Heard it a few ways, but not from you. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, so that was actually kind of funny. Um, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> Chris and I are both folks that kind of go back to the very, you know, earliest days of personal computing. In his case, uh, you know, while I'm an American that happened to be born to American parents while, uh, they were in England, and thus I carry a British passport and the Lord British sort of makes some sense. Uh, Chris is sort of reversed. His parents are British, but he was born in the United States, but started his game development career back in England. Uh, and his early work was on some of these, Uh, Even before, or at least a similar time frame, but much cheaper and popular in Europe, were these uh, like a Sinclair ZX81, these kind of almost uh, laptop-sized, simple uh, Z80 processor um, little computing devices. And so he had written two or three games on the Sinclair and, and released them over in England. And then his parents, who were living in Austin, Texas, he came to Texas to uh, do some work on what he was going to be his next game. And in this case, it, it was going to be on the Apple II. And so he was living, unbeknownst to us, there in Austin, Texas. Um, with Origin, as uh, we started to grow uh, in Austin, Texas, we're, of course, hiring all kinds of different people. We're hiring designers and uh Programmers and artists at a, at a high rate of speed, and the gentleman who had done all of the covers, in fact, did all the covers of all my games up through and including Shroud of the Avatar, starting with Akalabeth. The only the only cover he did not do was Ultimate Two, published by Sierra. Every Great. other cover of every one of my games, the art has been done by a gentleman by the name of Dennis Lubay. uh one of my obviously one of my favorite artists in the industry, and so when origin was growing in Austin it was obvious that one of the key hires we should make to bring in-house was Dennis LeBay and so we reached out to Dennis offered him a full-time position in-house he accepted and came and moved into the office Uh, and by the way all of these first generation of artists during this growth era of origin were people who had never done art on a computer these were all people we had to train to do art on a computer and oh, wow. uh and so dennis fit that bill too we brought him in house you know handed him a mouse and a keyboard and you know just, we all started in working and learning together well it turns out that dennis had prior to us bringing him in house he had been doing the artwork as kind of work for hire for chris roberts for his new small little game here in austin mm. and so we basically stole his artist and <laughs> shut down his game and so, you know, he called Dennis and say, like, hey, Dennis, you know, what's happening? You're not doing my art anymore. I said, yeah, no, I took this job with Origin. So Chris is like, who's Origin? <laughs> Who are these jerks that stole you away? And uh, so Chris came over uh, to see Origin. We also therefore got to see his uh, the game that he was working on. I think this was Times of Lore. And uh, uh, But uh, we said, well, hey, if you still want access to Dennis and all these other artists, why don't you just come bring your your game in house here at origin because uh, all of us who were authors with origin at the time myself included were really freelancers so you know i paid for all of the development of the what went into the ultimas at that time it's just that origin had a stable of resources artists and programmers etc that we could all pull from to do that work and so uh uh, that was obviously, uh, uh, quite interesting from, from, from Chris's standpoint too. So immediately he joined us and, uh, uh, began to produce, uh, his games at Origin.
0: So, uh, actually one part that I, I'm a little bit hazy on from your book in, uh, Explore Create was you did mention when you worked for Sierra, um, so how what was it like working at Sierra and uh, what ended up, uh, wh- why did you leave or did they, uh, did you leave or did they? Uh,
1: I left and uh, yeah, so what's interesting about this early era of the gaming industry is um, how, just how uh, uh, simultaneously wondrous this spectacle was and uh, also incredibly broken as a business it was and what i mean by that is you know when i went to meet with my first publisher uh, to sign a a contract and start marketing at Calabeth, then ultima um, that was also the the very same day by these same people was the day that i was introduced to hard drugs um oh, geez. The, the early era of the computer game industry was rife with mm-hmm. uh cocaine use especially in California. And so when I would go to California even to do a magazine interview, it was not at all uncommon. In fact, it was I would say it was almost universal. Um that the people doing the interview would be scratching out lines of cocaine on the tabletop of the table in the glass conference room that we were all sitting in in the middle of the rest of the employees. And, uh, and so no surprise, a lot of these early companies were both making tons of money, but also blowing, literally, yeah. lots <laughs> of money. And so, uh, so my first publisher, California Pacific, was still selling my games and the other games extremely well, extremely strongly. The sales were going very well. And yet they suddenly were unable to pay the bills. And so uh, they basically quit paying me. And so that's when I became a free agent, uh, looked around. It was it was Sierra that would agree to my outrageous demands of putting the game instead of in a Ziploc bag in a box for the first time. Ultima 2 is really the first uh, game in a box in the computer gaming industry.
2: Mm-hmm, they right. also
1: agreed to the even more outrageous demand of a cloth map, which added dramatically to the cost of goods. Uh, and so I moved over to Sierra. Now, interestingly, Sierra was mercifully free of the hard drugs, at least as far as I knew. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, drinks and smokes of various kinds were still <laughs> rampant. And, uh, and so, you know, it was, it was common on work days to have, you know, the principals of the company, you know, bringing around, you know, cases of liquor uh, where everybody kind of gets, you know, plastered, you know, just lying around on the floor of the office. Uh, and, and so still it was a lifestyle of excess and, mm. uh, and guess what? Even though ultimate two sold very well, there came a time halfway through its sales that they also quit paying me. And so therefore I became a free agent again. And in both of these times, I actually had called my brother, Robert up my older brother who was, uh, getting two business degrees and two electrical engineering degrees and I'd say, look, Robert, can you help me collect from these dead beats? And he tried in both cases and failed in both cases. And after that second time, he's saying, Richard, you know, you and I just got to go into business together because I, I promise you I'm a better businessman than they are. And I can also promise you that if if we get a, if we get money from us, the sales of your games, I will pay you. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, that's a better deal than I've ever had before. So, yeah, let's do it. So that's it was really my brother, Robert, that, uh, uh, you know, that was responsible for our, our beginning of uh, origin.
0: Steven Walvik from the Ultimate Dragons asks: Has your view on what defines virtues grown or changed since Ultima 4? Yeah,
1: you know, that's an interesting question because you know when I was developing the virtues, you you may have heard me sort of describe the process I went through. Um, mm-hmm. But it's one of the it's one of my prouder, uh, my proudest probably design contribution. Uh, it's definitely the one I worked the hardest on, uh, and it came like this. You know, it, you know. It wasn't until we started Origin, which the Origin's first product was Ultima 3. That's the first time I got fan mail. And fan mail then, as if I to the degree I ever get it anymore, uh, it still is this way. Now it's emails. But uh, anyone writing in usually goes one paragraph or line of, hey, I liked your games. And then however much longer they're <laughs> interested in writing is let me tell you what you did wrong and how to do it better. And so everyone's a critic, and that's pretty much all you get as feedback. But it was interesting to see also in that feedback that I got starting with Ultima 3, what the side effects were of some of the design decisions that I had done. Like in the early Ultimas, you could sneak around behind the counters of shops and steal stuff. And then the guards would chase you out if you got caught. And most people thought of that as fun. I thought it was fun. (laughs) But it turns out it became the lifestyle. I mean, instead of being a heroic character... I was training people literally to be thieves and you know, brigands. <laughs> and, and the greatest joy the players generally had was to kill off Lord British and all the townspeople, kill YOLO, kill the guards, kill, you know, kill all the characters I'd made, you know, especially if they already won the game once, the way to go back and continue to have fun with it is to kill everybody.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm going, wait a minute, that's, that, that's probably not the <laughs> best game design I could think of. But I said, Yo, I'm going to make a game about virtue. I said, okay, well, well, what does that mean? What am I going to write about specifically? And I went, well, okay, what are are your sources? Well, of course, there's religious sources. And I'm going, well, you know, not am I personally not a religious person, but, you know, I I thought that if I started down a game with a religious doctrine as a backbone, that that would, you know... uh, uh, wouldn't uh, get me where I, I thought I wanted to be. So I then started reading philosophy. I said, okay, well, what about, you know, Plato and Aristotle and all these people? What do they say about life and virtue? And if you go back, read their works, they're a bit dated, right? They're they're still mm-hmm. misogynistic. They're, they're still racist. Uh, you know, they still, you know, they're just things that don't, they didn't necessarily hold up that well through time.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
1: you just go like, wow, well, I could maybe do the seven deadly sins, but then that goes back to both scary movies and also the religious factor. Um, and, and I suddenly realized I can't find the basis of virtue that I believe in personally from a, as a modern person, um, and, and would also make a good game. So I'm going to have to make my own philosophy from scratch. And as soon as I realized that I was going like, Oh my God, I'm doomed. <laughs> uh, because you know, a lot of good thinkers have, thought to, have spent a lot of time over eons doing this and so i said well but you know let's try it and so i literally got out a, a stack of, of post-it notes and i started going through encyclopedias and religious texts and this is way before the internet of course uh and i started saying like okay i, I put a line across this kind of point, point on the wall it was a big whiteboard and i said if it's a, something that motivates you to do good deeds like honesty i'm gonna put it above the line and if it's something that motivates you to do bad things, like greed.'" I'm going to put it below the line. And I just began to put post-it notes up above and below this line. Good deeds, this motivates you to do good deeds, this motivates you to do bad deeds. And then I would stare at it and I'd go, oh you know what, a lot of these are sort of related to each other. And I would kind of go, you know, honesty and truth, those are, you know, those are kind of related to each other. And you know dishonesty and falsehoods, those are kind of the opposite. So I could, I began to organize left and right on the same board, not only up and down, but left and right into little puddles of things that were related to each other. And eventually, I, after spending literally months adding to and staring at this wall, I had this epiphany, and I I saw that almost everything I could see above the line had aspects of truth and love and courage in it, or a mixture of them, or maybe had one but not the other. Uh, and, And similarly, the things below the line were the ones that were more in absence of those same three principles. And uh, and then I began to notice I could combine them in these eight ways that became the eight virtues, and and so as I was kind of sorting this out and kind of coming to this realization that I I think I actually may have found in this random pile not the truth with a capital T truthiness but something that was at least a good way to talk about them and describe Mm -hmm. motivations Uh, that was that was true you know that felt Act, felt actual, uh, and uh, and then it was about that same time that I was watching some movies that I'm a big fan of. So I'm like a huge fan of The Wizard of Oz, right. and I, I happened to be watching The Wizard of Oz again. And went, wait a minute, truth, the the the, uh, the Scarecrow looking look for brain, you know, looking look for knowledge and truth, or the cowardly lion obviously looking for courage, and the Tin Man obviously looking for love, truth, love, and courage. There it is in that you know particular reality. Mm-hmm. And then I began to notice in other pieces of fiction through time. They didn't necessarily use the same words, but other people had sort of bounced against similar ideas. And and so that sort of reinforced to me that I must be onto something. And so I know the first question was is have I ever reconsidered and done others? Well, I am pretty darn happy with Truth Love and Courage. Yeah. And as I have explored looking for others, I actually constantly come back to Truth Love and Courage and and i think that if i were to try to make up another one to compete with it or just be different from it it would be inferior i have never created or been able to think of uh a a foundation that is more solid than truth love and courage
0: uh did did you come up with not not saying this is superior in fact by definition it was vastly inferior but did you come up with the uh the uh the triad of inner strength from the fellowship
1: absolutely yes and so mm um unity trust and worthiness so y- yes i did come up with that one as well and but i specifically came up with it for the gaming purpose
2: mm-hmm.
1: of could it both be described as a positive but be utilized as a controlling negative
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so you know uh Unity is you know, we're all you know, come join our family uh, by being unified within our community We can all lift each other up and you know, the sum of the parts is greater than the uh, the whole the whole is greater than some of the parts um, and uh, You know and and as as people, you know, we, we rise together. So that's that's the unity is a good thing but it could also be spun as You're either with us or you're against us, which means mm-hmm. if you're on the inside you're our best friend, but if we can't convince you to join us, then you're the enemy and you should be fought and resisted
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then trust. Uh, you know, where we said, look, you know, if you want to join our community, you have to prove that you're trustworthy, you know? so we want you to tell us everything you do. We want to uh, examine your life deeply. And so, you know, the good news is we, 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 you know the good news is we want you to be trustworthy but we also just want you to trust us. We know what's better for you. Please just trust us because we've already proven that we're trustworthy. So just trust us. If we tell you to go do something that might sound objectionable, okay. just trust us.
0: Don't question it. Yeah. Don't
1: question it. Just do it. And then worthiness to saying, you know, you, you should be worthy of your deity slash idealism. And so you want to uplift it. You know, you want to work for the cause. You want to be worthy. of. You want to be a worthy member of the community. You want to contribute to the community because we want every member of our community to be a good contributor to the community. But what that also means though, is, you know, again, if we tell you to go, you know, knock off a bad guy or something we perceive as a bad guy and then, you know, come back to us, uh, then that's how you prove yourself worthy is by doing what we tell you to do. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, anyway, you see how those are, uh, can be seen as communal positives but can also be used as a way to control people. And being a person who believes that a lot of, in my mind, uh, uh, organized religions or especially the cult-like religions you know have a lot of these attributes built in and so uh you know i was also being inspired by things i saw uh in practical reality around us
0: mm-hmm. uh, which brings me to a question from aaron bowie of the ultimate dragons where he asks uh at what point did you dis- uh did you decide that the guardian would be the avatar's evil half like was that something that you thought from the beginning, or is that something that sort of came about along the way?
1: Uh, I don't remember if we had it literally from the get-go. I think the the original idea for The Guardian really was just to have a bad guy that would live on through three games. And Hmm. that was... So during Ultima 7, uh, that may have been the only, or at least the foundational idea, was just that uh, uh, it was somebody... When I sat down to create the Guardian, I wanted the Guardian, unlike previous bad guys in my games and most others
2: mm. to
1: this day, um, instead of just sitting around waiting for you at the final level to come be powerful enough to kill them, I wanted the Guardian to be active. I wanted the Guardian to, you know, if, if you managed to convince a thief that was working for the Guardian to turn over a new leaf and be a good guy and tell you what the Guardian's up to... I wanted the guardian to go then murder that person so right, you, yes. to both show you that the guardian is really a bad guy. And also to make you worried about what you do because you just got somebody killed by trying to do the right thing. And, um, and so giving the guardian these, the, uh, the chance to survive through multiple games and the chance to be an active nemesis, uh, was kind of the seed of the guardian somewhere near the end of Ultima seven there might've been an ultimate <clears throat> we then expanded that to go. We were beginning to think about, well, how's this going to end? And, uh, and, and, you know, we, we'd already been doing these stories regularly where, you know, Lord British, the character is, you know, I, I tried to make sure that whenever bad things needed to happen, that he was, captured or you know his, his mm-hmm. mind was somehow off the off his game uh, <laughs> to, to make sure the Lord British was always oh, a good guy because I'm a good guy, you know mm-hmm. um, But uh, but we thought we you know, we wanted to uh, we, we knew we would similarly like to you know Make it a really big deal to get rid of him that the way to get rid of him couldn't just be by hitting him over the head with a club Met- metaphorically <laughs> um you know it had to be something much deeper than that and that's when we thought of this uh this entanglement
0: um so going back i just uh, i just thought of this now uh you mentioned uh how the players have this strange tendency to all try to kill lord british throughout your games yeah. um, which is actually kind of one of my favorite memories of the games because it was like sort of one of my fondest memories of playing games with my brother uh during Ultima 6, we obviously came across the fact that number one, Lord British was unkillable. And number two, he was, um, he had the touch of death. Any single strike from him will, can kill anyone, including the avatar. So we actually, uh, came up with a bit of a game within the game where we would, uh, antagonize Lord British to, uh, rile him up and then see how long we could last uh before he would kill us so it became sort of like a survival horror game where we would um just try to see how many moves we can get before being killed by Lord British uh first by antagonizing you then like throwing our party members in between us so you would mm-hmm. uh, take time to kill them and hopefully we can uh, get to a place of safety and that's actually how we discovered how to kill Lord British in Ultima 6 because at one point we just decided okay well uh we're going to antagonize him with this glass sword while he's sleeping and it turns out that that was actually like the one state in which uh, Lord British turns out to be somewhat vulnerable and uh, able to be killed by a glass sword. Yeah.
1: Well, in fact, let me even explain that. So, you know, what's fascinating is, again, going back to Ultima 3, that was sort of the time that I realized that everybody was killing me and all the <laughs> NPCs. And so I'm going like, oh, that won't do. And so, you know, starting with uh, Ultima 4, uh, in fact, it might have even been in Ultima 3. Oh, it's it's so hard to remember now. Um, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to make Lord British immortal. But my first attempt at making Lord British immortal failed. Uh, <laughs> and and the reason why that one failed <clears throat> is um, if you attacked Lord British, he would take no damage, and then he would come and slowly kill you. And that, that part of it worked just fine. But what I had failed to do was think about the fact that if you antagonize Lord British in his castle... You could run out to the moat in the castle, and behind the castle was a ship. And so if you jumped on that ship and then moved one square away into the middle of the moat, Lord British couldn't get to you to kill you. And so first of all, you could sit there and survive. But the second thing you could do is shoot the ship's cannons at Lord British. And it turns (laughs) out that went through a different damage routine that I didn't check what the character was you were shooting at. In fact, it didn't even do damage. When you shot a ship's cannons... It was a completely different algorithm. It just basically said fifty-fifty chance whatever you shot at is dead. Doesn't matter what it is, tall, small, doesn't matter, 50-50 chance is dead. So when you get on the ship, shoot at Lord British fifty, you know, do it two or three times, Lord British is dead. And so everybody figured that one out. And we're like, oh <laughs> Yeah, you know, here I thought that I had, you know, fixed this one. And uh then we went up to the glass sword one, you know, where uh as you've noticed, when when Lord British is asleep, the Icon mm-hmm. is not the King Icon, Yeah, when it was only used for Lord British. It was the Sleeping Character Icon, and that was what was tested during the damage routine. And so if you used anything other than the Glass Sword, uh, it wouldn't work, because it would wake him up. If you couldn't kill him in one shot,
2: mm-hmm.
1: he would wake up, and then he'd be back to being the King Icon again, and so no damage could be taken. Uh, and so it was just a loophole, you know, that fell in. And and it, it, as it turns out, there were loopholes starting with you know three, four, five, six, and finally with seven, I believe we actually plugged all the the unknown loopholes. But instead, the team put in a way to do it on purpose. Yeah. And uh, and that was you know big fun too because uh, uh you know my, my big thing to the team and there's stories around this principle also but my big thing with the team was if you put easter eggs in the game that's all great we all love easter eggs but you have to at least tell me what they are so that I can make sure we don't do something that you know I i don't want to be embarrassed by or have something unknown in the game
2: mm.
1: uh, and so in this case when the team said okay we want to put it away we're pretty sure you can't kill Lord British by any you know un, unforeseen ways um, but we're going to add one of our own And the one they put in was the metal plaque. Uh, Because just before that, there had been something happened for real in our office where one night uh, I was leaving, and the woman I was dating was leaving the office building, and we came down to the front door, and the front doors, these glass doors that are normally held shut by electromagnets and a metal plate at the top corner of the door where the electromagnets are holding that plate, and that plate is... Uh, screwed the glass door, and so what prevents somebody from outside coming in without having a code. Uh, as we approach the door, both of us noticed the door was slightly ajar. And so instead of pressing the exit button, my girlfriend just walks through the door. And when I get under the door, I just instinctually reach over and press the red button that says this for exit. And it turns out the reason the door was ajar is because the screw had come loose. Mm. And so the metal plate is still sitting there up on that magnet. And so when I'm standing under it and press the button to release the electromagnet, this large metal plate comes down from, you know, 12 to 15 feet up, hits me square on the top of the head, busts my skin open, and got 17 staples in my head, you know, knocks me flat on the ground in a big pool of blood, you know, my girlfriend runs back into the, you know, uh, screaming back into the office going, Rich has been hurt, Rich has been hurt. People be come out to find me in this pool of blood in the, in the entryway of the, of the building. Uh, no big deal other than 17 stitches. But, okay. but that was what they put in the game. So they decided that uh, in Lord British's castle, there's plaques over all the doorways that say throne room, food storage, whatever else it might be. And one of those in particular, if you wait till Lord British is walking exactly under in it and under it and double click on the plaque, the plaque will fall down, hit Lord British on the head and kill him.
0: Mm-hmm. Which they, I found completely accidentally. I just happened to want to read that sign at the moment that you were standing under <laughs> it.
1: That yeah, just shows you, you know, there's always a way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 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 but in this case, I actually think they even like put some, uh, uh, you know, Lord British was not married, uh, to this point since, uh, Lord British is really me. So he's always kind of paralleled my real life existence. But in in this particular case, they, they put some documents in Lord British's uh, uh, possession about him, you know, having an affair with the housekeeper or something, the castle or something. That's really, right. Uh, you know, something of that nature. I can't remember exactly, but uh, they, the, the team was just having you know fun, poking fun <laughs> at me. But the one, by the way, this, this one you may not know, which is again, in Ultima seven, one of the QA folks came to me and said, Hey, Richard I was scanning the map for some reason and I found a treasure room in a mountain that you probably ought to come see. And we went over to see it on this QA person's desk and sure enough somebody had created a room with every object needed to finish the game. And and so this was a, a, a thing such that if any real player had found this, it would mean that they could finish the game without ever doing any of the plot. And so this was exactly the kind of thing that I had told the team, you do not do this without telling me because we have to be the final arbiters as to which one of those, you know, uh, uh, those Easter eggs we leave in.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so we were going, okay, some designer has gone off the radar and put something in that we did not agree to. Mm -hmm. And so very quietly we said, okay, nobody tell anybody. Let's bring in a programmer. We got the programmer and said, there's probably a teleporter somewhere on the world map that sends you into this room. Please go find it. And we went and found it. And sure enough, it was an area. And we knew this guy named John who, whose area this was, whose <laughs> responsibility was to build out this area. So we can go, Okay, John has made himself his own Easter egg. Let's change it. And so we actually made a new back door to go to that treasure room. So the treasure room actually stayed in the game. We made a much more hidden treasure a uh, way to get there that I don't think anybody ever discovered. Oh. And we made John's teleporter teleport you to a new place. And that new place was a small room where you would be standing before Lord British. He, Lord <laughs> British would go... How dare you cheat <laughs> you are, you are you're a thieving scumbag you know you've been found guilty of treason, and you're found you know the punishment will be now, and that punishment is death and then we you know we had these fireballs and these other things kind of unleash this cataclysm on whoever the player was that would stand there, so that was our sort of retribution against john uh and we then left in our own back door uh just in case it would ever be useful to uh have the room with the uh, all the answers in it.
0: So just a couple more uh, questions for you. um, Sure. uh, One comes from our Patreon supporter, Bruce Bernaysi, who asks, uh, how how did the avatar go from being this, um, you know, basically a a role-playing game avatar, which is completely at the design of the player, into becoming a single character, like the the blonde hero, uh, who he becomes in the later games?
1: Well, so... Uh the the, the the answer would be uh it completely depends upon the uh, level of technology and ability to showcase things. For example, uh, if you think about Ultima Four, so uh, in fact I'll even go back before that. In 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 uh, a Calabath, Ultima One, Ultima Two, and even Ultima Three your character is literally a single stick figure. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, it is the mm. same stick figure. And the uh, and because of that, I could then ask the question, do you think of yourself as a male or as a female or other? And so like in Ultima 3, 2 and 3, I think you could you could pick you wanna be a male, a female, or other. And and the answer to that question made absolutely no difference whatsoever in the game. I don't even, it was probably recorded, but I don't think it was ever even reprinted ever in the game at all. I mean, in other words, that resulting selection was never reused in the game. Then when we get up to Ultima 4, where I'm really wanting this, you know, because I was doing a game about virtue, and I was going to judge you, the player, based upon whether you did good deeds or bad deeds. If you lie and cheat and steal, it's your fault it's not because you're playing some alter ego. You know, if, if you're playing a game as Conan the Barbarian, you should be expected to be ethically ambiguous. You know, you, you're a thief and a scoundrel and a womanizer, and you should role-play like a thief, a scoundrel, and a womanizer if you're mm-hmm. playing as, uh, 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 you know, a, a bad character. Uh, and so I didn't want you to be playing your evil wizard counter, uh, uh, you know, uh, alt. This has to be you, the player from Earth, who somehow finds their way into my world. And that's why we do the personality profile, that's why we do the moon gates that take you there. And so even if you might change your form physically uh, in some way, this is your avatar, your manifestation in our world. But then we ran into the problem of: well, you know, Ultimate 4 has a some cover art, and it is reasonable in cover art to expect to see the hero. And even though all good marketers would say i want to see the front of that adventurer Um, that would immediately in my mind run contrary to this is you Mm. and even though i had a fictional MacGuffin to say by the way you will transform physically when you become the avatar but it is your soul your spirit is in that avatar but i still said how to make that avatar as nondescript as possible. And so that's why on Ultima 4 you see the avatar facing into the scene and they have long hair, blonde is arbitrary. But the but the fact that we had this long haired adventurer facing in away from you into the scene was so that you could use your imagination to fill in that that's me to the mm-hmm. best we could, but but it was never our intention to say you are this specific, muscular, blonde-haired dude. It's just that you know, we're, we're taking advantage of the technology as it comes. So uh, you know, in those middle Ultimas, it, we still didn't have enough artwork to give you any real variety in your character. We were just barely out of the stick figure era. Well, now we have, of course, very deep avatars where you, you know, adjust your eyebrows and uh, you know, cheekbones much less your hair color, hairstyle, gender uh, quandaries, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, while I clearly understand that critique, and you know, uh, we were doing the best we could at each stage, and I find it interesting that sometimes I'm given credit for you know giving you the first you know non-binary gender uh, abilities in yes. the early Ultimas, <laughs> and I'm going really I I I, I would you know uh, I'm glad that it turned out to be important to people, but I have to tell you it was not it was not done because i was inspired to provide non-binary options i just was doing what i thought was kind of fun and cute at the time now uh now by the way as soon as i realized that it was meaningful to people i then doubled down but it was sort of an accidental discovery
0: mm-hmm. I guess one last question which i think um very many people have been asking i don't think i've ever really heard you uh answer this one uh what are your favorite games
1: Oh, wow. So, uh, so yeah. So, my favorite games, um, you know, interestingly, you know, I obviously play a lot of games still.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but most games I play for only about an hour before I go, eh, it's not for me, and put it away. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of us. But, so if, if I went back and said, what are the games that I really loved? And in my mind, that means I loved it enough to continue playing it to completion, if it was a solo player game, or for, you know, tens and tens of hours, hundreds of hours, if it's a, a multiplayer game without a ending mm-hmm. uh my list would go like this the first the first game i ever played to completion that i did not work on was missed uh, mm-hmm. and boy do i to this day I, my memories of mist are, are are near to my heart uh, i enjoyed it deeply then <clears throat> i know that was the first the rest of these will be somewhat out of order mm-hmm. but um i'm also a fan of the first uh command and conquer uh, the original Command and Conquer, I still think, is likely, at least for me, is the best of these uh, multiplayer uh, real-time strategy games. Right. It and it may just be biased by my memory of as I was learning to play it, so was everybody else I knew, and so we were constantly taking turns as to who had the superior strategy, and the strategies uh, uh, unfolded very diversely uh, with how you would use specialized units, and over the the sequels that have come out since, for the most part, it's just a speed race of who can build the fastest. And uh, uh, and so it, it lost some of the magic that those the earliest ones did. Uh, I was also a big fan of the first uh, Battlefield. Uh, I think Battlefield 1942 was the first one. Mm-hmm. And, and again, seeing a game where you could really use uh, multiple uh, vehicles or on foot, um, you know, was just exceptional. I just enjoyed the heck out of it. On the MMO front, I was a big player of World of Warcraft. I think it's a phenomenal game. and In fact, anything the Blizzard guys do, uh, I think they are still the kings of balance. They they do the challenge and reward cycle uh, better than anyone. I'm I'm often inspired by how well they do it, and I often think about how can I learn from that and and try to incorporate it into my own uh, future work. Um, More contemporaneously, I'm I'm opening now uh, my uh, iPhone because I actually do tons of gaming on my iPhone. And I have a folder here that I've just opened uh, that I call AAA Games. So it sorts at the top here of my, little, my folder list. And, uh, you know, the, the first game I ever played on a mobile device that I, that I finally said mobile games are going to be a big future and a big future that I want to be in as a player was a game called Spider. And uh, where you control this little spider trying to catch flies around in an old house. Oh. uh and a phenomenally good game especially for its day but still quite enjoyable uh probably my favorite game of all time still on mobile devices is plants versus zombies uh but i also loved the kingdom rush games all of them I still play those uh a little game called the creeps which i'm a fan of uh and and then some real interesting um uh on kind of a little bit less expected ones like there's a game called a dark room And it's a game, again, on the iPhone, but it is all text-based. It's the only purely text-based game that I really, really enjoy, uh, that I've loved a lot. Uh, And then I was a big fan of the Monument Valley games, another series I really like. Hope they get a third one out soon. And another odd one that a lot of people may not have heard of is a game called Old Man, a uh, uh, kind of an interesting side-scroller storytelling game uh, that I happen to really enjoy. Uh, but anyway, that's sort of so that's sort of my pantheon mm-hmm. of games. Uh, and I'm still waiting to fall in love with a VR game. Uh, right. I'm ordering the new uh, what's the new system that just came out from Oculus. Uh, uh, anyway, I'm ordering it for the family for Christmas and the lightsaber dueling game. I hear great things about, so I'm going to give that one a try. That's my that's my next hope for um, Obi Wan Kenobi, your only hope. But I, I'm hoping that. <laughs> I'm hoping Star Wars can something can finally make VR compelling.
0: One one question f- for me on a personal level, I really mm-hmm. must know this. Do you um uh, are you familiar with the Quest for Glory series? But, uh, yes, yeah. Oh yeah. Are, are you are you a fan of those? Like, have you have you played through them?
1: You know, I have not played through those, so uh, uh uh but no, I've I've respected them and I know lots of people have played them. I actually think it might be one that I would really enjoy, but no, I have not played them.
0: Mm-hmm. I just, uh, I think that's probably no coincidence that, um, the Quest for Glory series and the Ultimate series are like my favorite, the all time favorites, top of the list, uh, because they, they do come across a lot of the same, similar themes, uh, very, um, very innovative for their time, each of them. And Mm -hmm. it's just, uh, that's just, uh, wanted to, to see what your opinion on was then, because I believe I heard, if I'm not taking this out of context, I believe I heard that the Quest for Glory uh, games were commissioned to be uh, Sierra's answer to Ultima after you had left. Yep, yep. Uh, not, not to say, not to take anything away from uh, oh, no, the yeah. or Cory Cole because that is absolutely their vision and the no, game that they wanted to yeah, make. Of but, and um, I've,
1: I've heard nothing but good things about them too. So uh, uh, you know, there's uh, you know, it's, It is interesting that you'll notice on all the lists of the games that that I did mention on my list, there's very few. Role playing games. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so there's World of Warcraft, and you know, I was also a big fan of Diablo, also from Blizzard, uh, also a, a kind of a uh, action RPG. Um, but most of those were not. And so, it, it, interestingly, while I really enjoy creating virtual world role playing games, uh, it, maybe it's because I compare them to immediately to what I'm doing myself. Uh, but there's tons of ones that people have really liked. Uh, that I've sat down and gone and played. But if they're not the way I would do it, then I seem to get frustrated about it. Like uh, Lineage, the game from NCSoft that did so well for NCSoft, was incredibly beautiful. Inspired by Ultima, incredibly beautiful. Tons of fans, actually way more fans than any Ultima ever had if you look at it globally. And yet when I sit down and play it and I walk over and go, oh, look, there's a beautiful chest. Oh, look, it's just art. You can't interact with it. I'm like, going, screw this. I'm not going to play it. That's you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Because it's wrong. Because the design is wrong. Because it's, <laughs> you know, it's not the way I think it ought to be. And so, uh, uh, you know, it, maybe that's the reason I don't know why. But, uh, uh, but no, I, 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 I like all kinds of games, but uh, rarely games that are directly competitive.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much again for taking the time to uh, oh, come out. It was, it's been an absolute joy for me. Uh, I think if I'm if I'm going to close out with anything, I just want to let you know that Ultima has been like one of the single biggest impacts on my life from a video game, or even even from pretty much anything. Uh, I myself actually walked down the aisle of my wedding to stones excellent um, my oh, fantastic uh, my my best friend has had the stones as his um as his ringtone for years i still know i still have friends who still use it uh just me and my friends and so many people throughout my life have just been completely touched by uh by your work uh, so i just wanted to thank you very much
1: well thank you so much for saying and, and i'll pass that on to yolo also uh, <laughs>
0: you
1: know yolo uh, obviously gets credit for stones which is one of the greatest things ever in ultima so
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah since this is the classic gaming uh, group, uh, you know, uh, I, I still think uh, the classic games have a lot to tell, uh, even modern players who get a chance to go back and experience them. So, uh, you know, keep on playing, keep on enjoying, and uh, we'll, uh, you know, all of us have had a chance to be in a, at this early part of the industry. It'll be exciting to see where this takes us down through the next few decades.
0: All right. Well, th- thank you very much. The honor is entirely mine, and thank you for, once again for joining
1: us. Absolutely, my pleasure.
0: And thank you all for joining us. Uh, as you may or may not know, the Classic Gamers Guild is on Facebook. We have a page, we have a group. Come join the community and uh, chat classic games with us. You can follow us on Twitter at the CG Guild. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at CGG Podcast. And we have an email if you would like to. Uh, if you have any questions or you'd like to interact with uh, the hosts, the email address is mail at classicgamersguild dot com. If you'd like to support the show. We have a Patreon as well. Just look up the Classic Gamers Guild. Uh, Once again, Paul could not uh, join us today. So I will close this out by saying don't do murders unless maybe you can find the way to murder Lord British, but I wouldn't really recommend that. But it's fun. See you next time.